Stunning that a 15-year-old was negotiating <laughs> this stuff with legislators. I mean, was there a lot of the negotiation going back and forth and and stuff between, I assume, between legislators, but were you talking to them about, well, we could change this language a little bit and that kind of stuff too? Yeah, um, I definitely had a couple conference calls with my representative and his legal team at the time. And I remember kind of just telling them like what my goals were, but also having to recognize if we wanted to garner um, more supports and increase the odds of getting this through, I would rather increase the odds of success and um, entertain additional amendments than not get anything through at all. So. Yeah, it was definitely interesting as a 15, 16, and 17-year-old having uh, regular meetings and conference calls with uh, legislators. Very grateful that my mom was willing to go with me and drive me all over the place. So, it was a group effort. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. Well, thanks for being with us for another episode of American Potential. Look, when you were in school, I'm sure you were given all kinds of assignments and projects to do, but how many of those ever resulted in getting a law changed? Probably not too many. Well, today's guest was given a civics assignment where she had to write to her state representative and her state senator, and she decided to share her dad's story and how an annual doctor review set him back on the progress he'd made. So her father was a firefighter and due to an incident where he saved lives, but was physically injured, he now suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Now, because of the type of pension he received, one of the requirements was that he had to see a doctor each year and retell his story. And that causes him to relive that trauma every year which sets him back each year on his road to recovery. So seeing how this yearly evaluation was affecting her dad, our guest decided to take this story uh, to state lawmakers and, and used it to with her civics assignment because she was passionate about it. I want to welcome Grace Latz to the podcast to talk about her dad and the amendments that were passed that helped her dad and others in the same situation. Grace, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Okay, yeah, great. So first of all, I understand you grew up, sounds like in kind of an agriculture agriculture family. You showed goats in 4-H and grew up on a farm, right? I did, yeah. So I'm the oldest of four. I have uh, two younger brothers and a younger sister and grew up on a farm out in the country and we all had kind of our little area of animals that we were responsible for. So mine was uh, goats and I showed Nigerian dwarfs in 4-H and did a lot of stuff on the agriculture side of things with livestock and baling hay in the summers, things like that. Now you never did those crazy uh, fainting goats, did you? Those things are wild. I did not. So fun fact, uh, the fainting goats, it's <laughs> um, kind of a defense mechanism and they only faint if they're scared and if they trust you um, and you've established a, a good rapport with the animal, then they actually won't faint. And I never had that with any of my goats, but I also wanted to make sure yeah. that I didn't take any fainting goats to the fair because I thought that might be a little cruel. 
Oh, sure. And I got to say, yeah, that's true. I could see all the kids at the fair trying to do that, the non-ag kids trying to do that for sure. For sure. Um, but anyway, okay. And I understand your father has one of the greatest first names known to man. His name is Jeff. Is that right? He does. Yes. You guys share the same first name. <laughs> oh, great. That's awesome. Well, anyway, thanks for being with us. So tell me about your dad and why he wanted to be a firefighter. Yeah, so um, my dad was a firefighter for the city of Champaign for 20 years and a lieutenant for 13 of those years. Uh, he grew up in a blue collar family and um, originally started in construction and then kind of got involved in his local fire department up in the Chicago area and then had tested at various fire departments around the state and eventually got a call from Champaign and started there and was grateful to serve as a firefighter and civil servant to the citizens in his community for quite a long time and absolutely loved it and had um, a big passion for it. So he, he loved it. So how long, how long was he a firefighter? 20 years. Um, and talk about the day. So there was an incident. Talk about that day and, and what happened with your dad. Yeah, so November 16th of 2013, my dad was um, a lieutenant and he had responded along with a couple other um, engine companies to a fire um, in the early hours of the morning. And he was on one of the ground crews. He wasn't originally assigned to go into the building. There were a couple other firefighters inside already um, investigating things and trying to get a, a handle on the fire. Um, and my dad had realized that the firefighters inside had kind of quit responding to the radio traffic. So he had um, kind of surveyed the perimeter of the building with a thermal imaging camera to get a better idea of what might be going on inside and realized um, throughout that, that the firefighters inside unbeknownst to them had some fire beneath them and in the walls around them. So in an effort to try and make sure that they were aware of how dire the circumstances were, especially since that they, they had quit responding to the radio traffic. He wanted to make sure that he was able to um, warn them that they needed to be uh, working on making their way out here pretty quickly because fires, especially in modern day and age, um, can escalate pretty quickly. Um, so he ended up running in um, and ordered an immediate evacuation. And they ended up actually bailing out of the second story window head first and both of them made it out of there uh, relatively unscathed, uh, thanks to my dad running in there to order an evacuation. However, on his way back out, um, he's about eight to 10 feet from the exit. And he worried initially going in that if he had taken the time to put his mask on with his uh, breathing apparatus, his SCBA, that they would either not be able to hear him clearly because the conditions were at that point developing so rapidly or if he did take the time to put on his SCBA before he entered, he might run out of time to um, order the evacuation and not be able to save them. So he had his gear on, but carried his mask with him and ran in to order the evacuation. After he ordered the evacuation and they ended up bailing out of the second story window, he turned around as he went to go back towards the exit. At this point, the fire had begun to continue to develop and had enveloped the whole staircase and he needed to put his mask on. So before he got to the exit, he took his helmet off to put his mask on. And in that moment, unfortunately, he was caught in an explosion. He had a ceiling and an entertainment center follow him. 
and he was pinned against the ground and burned alive until he lost consciousness um, and was eventually, by the grace of God, rescued by a rapid intervention team and drug out and then uh, rushed to the burning of a ICU. Wow. What, what, a, what an amazing story and what, what a hero your father is. Um, you know, I've, I've heard many stories like that, uh, you know, for people who serve in the military and, of course, firefighters and police officers and some of our, you know, first responders who who just have incredible stories like that. And uh, I suppose your dad knew um, as a firefighter that 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 could kind of always happen. Right. Growing up, I'm sure you you felt that, you know, he probably told you, you knew he did a dangerous job. Oh, absolutely. He had always uh, told my mom and my siblings and I that um, if he never came home one day, it would be because he ran in to uh, save someone else. So we knew that that was a, a risk that came with the job. And there was even one day that he was uh, late to come home for a Mother's Day weekend. It happened to fall on a Sunday and um, it was because he had ran in to save two little girls. So we knew that that kind of came with the territory, but I think it's one thing to know that in your head and it's another to actually go through it as a family. Yeah. Pretty, pretty amazing story. And, um, you know, thank God that your, your dad survived that. I'm sure it was life, very much life altering. Uh, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. I'm sure that it, it has altered his life tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think for my family, um, my dad ended up going off the job on a PTSD line of duty disability pension. Um, but I think for us kind of embarking on that journey of healing and what that looks like, we realized first that the brain kind of focuses on healing the body physically first before it processes kind of the um, mental turmoil and everything that had happened um, on that side of things. So we didn't initially know that uh, my dad had PTSD. It kind of developed um, a few months after the incident. And then kind of going through that, um, learning from a young age, like what is PTSD and how does that impact not just the individual, but also the entire family unit was another journey that we all had to go on together. Um, learning that, you know, PTSD um, is a mental health condition and disorder that really anyone can develop, although it is more common in first responders and military um, and it's usually characterized by um, a condition that develops in someone that's experienced or witnessed um, a horrifying or life-threatening event. However, um, the way that it impacts an individual, uh, just kind of a brief background, when you're confronted with a life-threatening situation, your body kind of activates its own sort of um, alarm system. There's going to be a huge rush of chemicals and hormones and neurotransmitters during that time in an effort to essentially um, self for self-preservation um, and to respond in whatever way you need to to survive whatever that imminent threat is. Um, some people freeze, some people fly, flee from danger, and some people fight. Um, however, if you survive whatever that incident was that kind of triggered that natural alarm system within your brain, it can result in uh, permanent structural changes within the brain and therefore impact the individual as far as like the way they respond and process and interpret uh, normal stimuli and interact with their day-to-day -day life. So this is where we see symptoms such as um, nightmares, flashbacks, hypervigilance, depression, anger, anxiety, um, increased startle response, constantly on guard for danger, things like that. 
uh, begin to kind of develop within the individual. So, and then kind of throughout that journey, you see that not only impacts the individual, but when they come back home to the family unit, the family is then trying to kind of be on guard for what potential triggers could be that might irritate or inflame one's PTSD and then how they can kind of adapt as a unit to help um, promote the best chance they have at moving forward. So that was definitely something that we had to navigate together. Right. So he had to heal physically, had to heal emotionally uh, and, and mentally. Uh, and, and that's, that's a process that, that, that you went through. So it took you like about a year, I guess, for his PTSD to start. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's um, as far as I can remember, that's uh, pretty much how it went because we had to go through the physical healing, um, of course, first. And then all of that started to kind of once the physical healing had occurred, um, that's when the rest of that kind of uh, came into light. So what was it like? Uh, obviously, your dad had to go get an annual evaluation, right? And let's let's talk about that first. That that sure. was part of his pension. Is that correct? That because of the pension, he had to go do an annual evaluation. Is that is that what was working there? Mostly correct. Yeah. So anyone that goes off on a okay. uh, line of duty disability, regardless of whether it was for PTSD or more of a mechanical injury, like a near back injury that was incurred in the line of duty while they were doing their job has to go to these mandated annual evaluations with a state appointed doctor to essentially see like, has there been enough healing from the year prior, um, whether they compare past x-rays or imaging with current ones or however they do that. Um, and if there's been enough healing, then they can essentially take them off of that line of duty disability pension and reinstate them as an active duty firefighter. Um, however, the way that that was set up was designed more so to handle mechanical injuries like a near back injury and not so much designed to handle PTSD, um, line of duty disabilities in a nature that was best for the first responder. So for my dad and for my family, what that looks like was he went off on the PTSD line of duty disability. And from the time you go off until you reach the age of 50, you have to go to these annual evaluations. So for someone, let's say they get injured and they go off the job on a PTSD line of duty disability, if they go off at 48, they only have two years. It's still going to negatively impact them and their family, but it's two years. Versus if you have someone, let's say, that goes off at my dad's age at 40 or even worse yet, 35, they have 10 to 15 years of these annual evaluations where essentially they go to this state appointed doctor that doesn't typically have any previous rapport established with them. And they ask them, what happened? How has that impacted you and your family? How has that negatively upended your life? Things of that nature. And as a result, it causes them to relive that trauma or is similar to sending a cancer patient, for instance, to a, a new oncologist every year and asking um, making them go through this whole process. And then during that, giving them a little bit more cancer just for the purpose of proving they still have cancer. So for me, and witnessing that and watching that process, I felt like it was a disservice to my dad's uh, many years of selfless service for his community. And I felt like it was something that I wanted to see changed. So you, you had a, a, a sort of a civics project in class. First of all, how old were you when, when this happened with the, with the re, uh, request in or the assignment in, in school? 
I was 15 when I was tasked with uh, writing this letter. Yeah. Well, and that's what's such a great part of the story. I mean, it's not like this was uh, you were in your senior year of high school here. So you're 15 years old. You got an assignment to to write to a legislator. Is that right? Tell us that story. Yeah. Yeah. So I was homeschooled um, and I did Teen Pact Leadership School Civics Program. And for one of their homework assignments, I had to write a letter uh, to my state rep and state senator on an issue important to me and then write a correlating bill proposal. And I just, for my own purpose of clarity, usually had those kind of go hand in hand. And at that point, you know, my dad had gone off the job and I, it, this was a couple years post his incident. And I decided to write a letter about these mandated annual evaluations and what that whole process looked like and what kind of my goals were as far as potentially amending it. I had no idea uh, what journey I was about to embark on there, but I just figured that I would draw attention to it and hopefully someone in a position with more authority and influence uh, would hear my story and be moved um, to possibly push forth some action that could help, if not my my father, hopefully other first responders and their families in the future. So it started as a letter to my state representative at the time, Tom Bennett, and then my correlating bill proposal. And eventually I got a meeting with him. And then, well, actually it was his chief of staff. And then from that, I got a meeting with him. We worked with his legal team and we ended up getting a piece of legislation drafted, which started as House Bill 4939. However, um, what I quickly learned was not everything passes through the Rules Committee initially. So um, that first effort ended up uh, dying in the pit of the Rules Committee, but it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because it was a unique opportunity then for my mother and I and my state representative and his legal team to kind of go back to the drawing board, insert some new language, really clarify like what what are our goals And then we were able to reintroduce my proposed legislation as amendments one and two to an already existing piece of legislation, Senate Bill 3119, which at the time was sponsored by uh, a former Senator Pamela Altoff. I was able to talk to her, kind of share my story with her, what I was hoping to achieve. Her Senate bill was already amending downstate police pension language. Police and fire have very similar pension language. So when her Senate bill went through and she allowed me to graciously attach my amendments onto hers, mine went through on the back of hers. When my amendments were then reintroduced, um, it was referred by the Rules Committee to the Personnel and Pension Subcommittee of the Illinois House of Representatives, where I was able to share my testimony with them. And it passed the Personnel and Pension Subcommittee of the House of Reps hundred or 13 to one in favor. And then it went to the Senate correlating subcommittee and passed unanimously in the Senate subcommittee. And then it was later sent to the floor of the house of representatives and it passed 106 to four in favor. And then again, sent to the Senate and passed unanimously there. And eventually was sent to the desk of former Illinois governor, Bruce Rauner, who signed it into law and it became public act 11097 on August 26th of 2018, a couple of days after I turned 17. Wow. That's, a, I mean, what a great story. So, I mean, I'm fascinated by it. Did you, like most people, when they get an assignment when they're 15 in, about like write a letter, 
they write it about, could there be, you know, could there be, um, Coca-Cola or Pepsi or something in all the <laughs> drinking fountains at school? Um, or, you know, something about dogs or cats or whatever. I mean, you, you literally saw this as an opportunity, which I just think is amazing. But a lot of people look at it as, okay, I have to write this as an assignment. I'm going to write it. And then they forget about it. But it seems like you had a passion and not only did you write the letter, you expected follow up, right? With the, with your legislators. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I will say like, I did not expect it to get that far, but I remember telling my mom, I'm like, I have to try. Like, I, I don't know what's going to come of this, but I know that I have to try and I'm going to stop at nothing to at least do the one thing I know to do. I'm going to draw attention to something that I feel like needs to change and hopefully get to share my story with whoever will give me 10 seconds of their time. And then eventually maybe something will happen, but I'm at least going to do whatever I can, uh, whatever I can do and whatever's within my control uh, to make sure that I leave no stone unturned. So yeah, I just, um, my mom graciously drove me down to our state capitol several days a week during the spring session of 2018, which was the 100th Illinois General Assembly. And I had prepared ahead of time um, folders and I ended up putting in each folder, I chose the color red, which initially was an accident and then later turned out to be um, a great, really tactic because if someone didn't have time to uh hear my story or they had a busy schedule, if I was able to hand them a folder, what was going to stand out on their desk amidst all the other papers? A red folder, which I then put on the front, my name in all caps and black Sharpie. And then inside they would have copies of my letters that I could leave blank so that I could address them specifically to whoever it was I was trying to talk to. And then in addition to that, I would have copies of my bill proposal and um, business cards that my mom took me to go get made. And then I just carried this around and tried to talk to whoever I could. And it was definitely a goal of mine to talk to any single representative or senator that could at any point vote on my piece of legislation. But I also learned throughout that journey to not overlook people in positions such as security guards and secretaries and legislative aides, because it was those people that really kind of are crucial background characters that know a lot of a lot more information than people might initially give them credit for. And they uh, definitely uh, gave me a lot of tips and advice and really laid the the groundwork uh, for me to be able to um, make the connections that I needed to share my story and ultimately get that passed. What an incredible story. I mean, it, you know, the fact that you're 15 years old, you know, this is a, a, a civics class or a civics assignment, I guess, in school and you then take it and, you know, we're so successful with it, but did you learn, you learned all that stuff. I mean, some of it's common sense, right? To one, be polite to people and, you know, be presentable and all those things are common sense, but, but, but there's a lot to a legislative process that a 15 year old probably just doesn't know. And there's probably people who are 50 who don't know uh, a lot about the legislative process. Did you just kind of go in and learn it as you went and, and uh, you know, kind of just get through it and get better as you went or how'd that work? Yeah, I mean, I think I had a pretty good foundation from my civics program, Teen Pact. But yeah, there are quite a few things that I ended up just kind of learning as I went. But I think it was something that played to my benefit was 
no one expected me to get that far. So when the bar is already set on the ground, all you have to do is step over it to really accomplish anything. So starting literally at the bottom, it gave me, I think, the unique perspective to be able to go up and ask literally anyone, whether it was a security guard or a secretary or, or a representative themselves, um, and really picking up and collecting um, any tips and advice that I could along the way. And then some of it was definitely trial and error and figuring out you know, people's schedules, or if you couldn't talk to someone directly, maybe who was their friend. And if you could get a meeting with their friend and you could get their vote, then you might be able to later secure a meeting with them. Yeah. Um, did you, did you have um, either legislators or maybe lobbyists who, who lobby the legislature or others who like were pretty negative about it or the prospects or did, was everybody like, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's do it. I mean, I'm sure there were barriers and, and blockades that you had to get around. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely, there were some stereotypical barriers. I think that any piece of legislation is inevitably going to face. I remember um, even running into a couple lobbyists on behalf of police pension language and they had told me that they had been advocating for various uh, reforms and proposals um, regarding police pension language for upwards of five years. So it definitely, um, on a case-by-case -case basis, can take quite a while. Um, I think a, a lot of the opposition was mainly just solely from the fact that, you know, here you have this high school, homeschool student uh, with no real prior experience or knowledge in politics uh, much before all of this happened. So I think much to everyone's credit, like, if I had seen a high schooler really advocating for legislative reform, I would have been maybe surprised, but it's easy to assume that um, I would not be likely to succeed, but I kind of take that as a challenge and I'm not one to back down from a challenge. So I figured I would do everything I could to just push it through to the end. And I think I had to learn pretty early on that a quantum leap overnight as far as success uh, was not going to happen, especially in the realm of politics. And I think that's applicable to many areas of life, but enough small steps in the right direction do eventually add up. And that's what I had to learn to do. And I just had to keep, keep going and keep persevering and keep praying and doing everything I could to just do my part and show up and hang in there. Yeah. So ultimately, what let's talk about what the amendments were. So what what passed, and so yeah. what changed for your dad and and for other firefighters who might find themselves in a similar situation. Absolutely. So Amendment One enforces an age cap. So originally, um, anyone that goes off the job on a line of duty disability has to go the to the annual evaluations from the time they go off until they reach the age of fifty. Amendment One and um, reinstates the fact that they have to, at the very least, attain the age of 45 before they can apply to use this. Um, unfortunately, I'd love to push that back more in the future, but they also wanted to make sure that there weren't um, any first responders that might try and abuse the amendments. Uh, so that's where Amendment 1 came in. And then Amendment 2 states that as long as they have at least two doctors write a letter attesting to the fact that they believe this individual's PTSD is severe enough that they cannot return as an active duty firefighter, then they can take those letters to the city pension board. And then as long as the city pension board votes in agreement with those letters, supermajority, four out of five at the very least, 
they can then be alleviated of the five remaining years of evaluations. So for me, it was definitely a drop in the bucket. I'd love to see more done in the future. But again, it was a small step in the right direction. And my dad was uh, gratefully the first firefighter that got to use that. Stunning that a 15-year-old was negotiating (laughs) this stuff (laughs) with legislators. I mean, was there a lot of the negotiation going back and forth and and stuff between, I assume between legislators, but were you talking to them about, well, we could change this language a little bit and that kind of stuff too? Yeah. Um, I definitely had a couple conference calls with my representative and his legal team at the time. And I remember kind of just telling them like what my goals were, but also having to recognize if we wanted to garner um, more supports and increase the odds of getting this through, I would rather increase the odds of success and um, entertain additional amendments than not get anything through at all. So, yeah, it was definitely interesting as a 15, 16, and 17-year-old having uh, regular meetings and conference calls with uh, legislators. Very grateful that my mom was yeah. willing to go with me and drive me all over the place. So, It was a group effort. That's pretty incredible. Did you ever think, like before you started all this, that writing a letter to your state representative would result in getting this these amendments passed? No, I definitely did not think that this was in the future for that letter. I just knew at the time, all I knew was this is not how I felt um, the system should remain. If it's if it was designed to serve our first responders, I felt like this was a disservice or an area in which a category of our first responders, such as my dad and those that had been injured in the line of duty, had slipped through the cracks. And I was just hoping to draw attention to it and hopefully amend the system or maybe someone else could amend the system to better serve our first responders. I wanted to fight for those that had fought so hard for others. As far as how I was going to accomplish that or what was going to come of that, that was definitely uh, something that kind of just fell into place along the way. But I never expected to be able to pass some legislation, but very grateful. Well, it's just, I love the story because, you know, what it tells us is that a person can make a difference. And I, I love telling, helping tell the stories on this show that uh, people are, they get involved, but it's not just to fix, make their situation better. I mean, you did make it better for your dad, but you made it f- better for all first responders who would be in that same situation, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was something I realized throughout that journey was really what started as a fight for my family when I realized that this um, gap in the system is, so to speak, that I wanted to see changed. If it could happen to my family, it could happen to any first responder in their family. So it really did become a fight for all first responders and their families. So it was Definitely a journey, but very grateful um, to have embarked on that journey and have gotten legislation passed. And I'd I'd love to see uh, more legislation passed in the future for first responders. Were there other, just before we go here, I wanted to ask this, were there other, um, were there other first responders or anyone who saw this kind of moving through and joined the fight? Or was this kind of you the whole time by yourself uh, working with these legislators? It was pretty much just me um, the whole time. But I think, again, people thought that it was very a sweet gesture that a daughter was willing to fight for her dad and other first responders. But again, I don't think a lot of people expected, nor did I expect um, me to be able to do what 
I ended up doing um, with, of course, a lot of help along the way. But I knew that I had to yeah. had to fight and see it through. Yeah. Well, it was a, it is a sweet gesture for you to do that uh, for your dad for sure, and but but also sweet for you to to do it for all of the first responders. Amazing story. Um, how's your dad doing, by the way? He's doing great. He um, he's he's doing really great. So our family is um, about ten years out. So it's it's been definitely a journey. It's not something that. PTSD in and of itself is not something that ever really goes away, but I think that throughout time you develop additional coping mechanisms and it has a way of kind of clarifying for each of us, I think, in various aspects of our lives, uh, for me and for my siblings, uh, different passions that we have and wanting to continue um, fighting for uh, first responders or PTSD awareness. And my one of my brothers is now wanting to become a firefighter as well. So. Well, I'm glad your dad's uh, doing well, and I'm glad that you took up this cause and, and fought for him and the other first responders who might be in this situation as well. Grace, what a what an incredible story. Uh, we just can't thank you enough for sharing it with us. Yeah, thank you for letting me. You bet. All right. Well, listen, this, I love this story. I, I just, this is a great example. Like, what excuse does someone who is 40 years old and has, you know, some money to play with or whatever to not go fight, you know, to, to get a law changed. They have no excuse. Grace is 15 years old and she sees something here and says, I'm going to go push this and works, you know, kindly play. How many 15 year olds would do that uh, today? It's just such a great story. So so great to, to hear Grace's story and, and to be able to, to tell that. And it's what being a, you know, a citizen activist is all about. We tell stories like this all the time of people saying, yeah, that's not right. I'm going to go try and get this law changed, this law passed. And it's, you know, removing barriers for them or for their families or for others in the community. And that's the other piece of this I love. We Every story we tell, it's always a person's personal story. But at the end of the day, they get something passed that affects all the people in their city or all the people in their state or all the people in the country. And that's what's so great about it. So, uh, so great to have Grace come on, tell that story. Hey, thank you for listening to American Potential and obviously for getting involved. This podcast has really grown. It's just been amazing to see. Uh, we started it on February 1st of 2023. So we're, you know, 11, 12 months in. And last year we had in 2023, we had about 12 million people who actually listened to the podcast or watched it on YouTube, Facebook, on social media. That's an incredible number. Uh, 3.3 million in December of 2023 alone. Uh, the sky's the limit because of you and want to thank you for listening to the podcast and joining us and you know, sharing these great stories like Grace. Listen, liberty and freedom, they're easily taken for granted. Don't take liberty and freedom for granted. Go out there, defend liberty and freedom. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com. Potential.com.